session today could get some... You're getting really frustrated, aren't you? People are getting really annoyed with me now. I'm going to come up with some brilliant ones for tomorrow that involve matches and fuel. But you'll be fine. Stewards, don't listen. We'll be fine. It'll be okay. There's no smoke detectors here. There's absolutely no problem. Okay, so today's session is to try and help us uh, to attempt to understand how to make ethical... I always, always want to revert back to Romford and say ethical. How to make ethical, <laughs> with an F, decisions based on the character of God, the story of the Bible, and walking with Jesus. And that, that's the important one for you, what it means to actually walk with Jesus. Uh, we're going to do the same thing as yesterday. So I'm going to do the theory, the why section, which is really hard if you're an activist, but it's a good discipline. Malcolm's going to come on and do the what bit. And then I'm going to come back and do the how bit and start to try and apply this and have some hopefully fruiting, animated rows and debates with each other, which is brilliant. That's how we get underneath the skin of a subject. But the why issue, you know, uh, for me, uh, my life, I guess, has been steered by my walk with Jesus, by stories that I encounter, by my journey, by things that happen to me, by interactions with people who are very different to me, they shape my understanding. And I said this probably more clearly in the, because I remember to say it, in the second session when we repeated this, there are things I believe now and teach now that I wouldn't have taught and possibly believed even five years ago. And I was listening to some sermons that I preached recently when I first became senior pastor of a church a number of years ago, where I was really strident about some issues and I was listening to myself, and I thought, I don't, I don't think I believe that anymore, which is really tricky. So an interesting one for me, it was recently I was in a, a ministry trip to Virginia. Um, it's my first visit to the States since I was eight, because I'm such a British bloke. You know, I just tend to stay here, really, apart from the old foray into India. So I'd not been to America, but I was invited to go, and I went over with Graham Kendrick, which is me and, me and Gray, you know. <laughs> We went over to Virginia together. Anyway, I met these guys called the New Canaan Society. And they're a fascinating bunch of guys. They are a group of very passionate Christians who uh, are basically, basically comprised of Wall Street traders. You know, they're all multimillionaires. They only want to deal with market guys. And they're a network that's spreading across the, the U.S. now. And I went to a little talk by the uh, leader called Jim. And Jim... It's like an investment bank for Goldman Sachs. And he was really kind of in my face, full on guy. And I said, he said to me, what are your values, Carl? What's your values as a movement? And I said, well, CVM's values. You know, we, we want to make Jesus known to blokes and blah, 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 blah. I said, what's your values? And he said, turning up. I can't do it and make an accent, but this is the best I can do. And he said, no, thank you. You can get out. Right, it goes, uh, it goes <laughs> number one, turning up. Telling people about Jesus being devoted to the Bible, being ethical at work, and cigars. I said, excuse me? He said, cigars. I went, right, okay. And at the conference for three days, these guys had flown in a Cuban cigar roller with loads of cigar stuff, like what the, like tobacco, leaves, and they'd all set up. And, and every single bloke... In that conference, 400 men could have free hand-rolled cigars, as many as you could smoke throughout the whole conference. It was really amazing. We'd be in there singing, shine, Jesus, shine, and then everyone would dash out and have a Cuban. 
Now, I thought, that's really weird. You know, everything else seems to be on the money. And then they were all going, and I went in, they had a casino, which they had no gambling, not into gambling, good evangelical boys. So all the gambling had been shut down. But I went in there and I couldn't see the bar. It was just so chock-a-block with smoke. And all in there going, yeah, yeah, it was a great session with Graham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think this is nuts. Now, here's the thing. Loads of Christians that I know in the UK would freak out at the idea of a Christian men's conference being a smoking conference. Wouldn't they? Loads of, loads of people I know would think that's really off theme. But here's the thing that slightly challenges me. In the 1960s, everyone would walk out of church and have a cigarette. But no one would go down the pub. Now everyone goes down the pub, but no one has a cigarette. So what's going on? Now, when I was church planting on a very rough council estate, uh, I'd, uh, I'd try to partner with a wealthy church who might be able to give us some cash Basically, that was the real idea. You know, I said, let's form a relationship between suburbia and the estate. And they all thought it was a great idea. So I invited the leadership of this very middle-class, wealthy, very wealthy church to come and visit my estate church, where it was characterized by the odd punch-up during worship. We had a couple of guys who were heroin addicts and used to have to leave to go and boot up some heroin <laughs> during the worship. And we had, seriously, once I was leading worship and a fight just tumbled out through the fire exit doors. I mean, it was a very interesting kind of scenario. We had all kinds of things kicking off all the time. But by this time, we invited these people in. It had settled down a little bit. So they came into the worship service and they listened to the preach, which wasn't a preach. We used to have debates because the guys couldn't sit through a monologue sermon, so we used to have a row with each other every week. It was quite interesting. And uh, they sat through that, and then I brought them back to my house for a cup of tea. I said, so how are you feeling about partnering with us? And this guy sort of cleared his throat, the, the senior pastor of this church, and he said, we had a quick chat in the car while we were coming over, and I just don't think it's something we're going to be able to do. And I said, why? And he said, well, half your church should be under discipline if they're in our church. And I said, well, I don't think they're all fornicating. You know, I don't, no one's sort of sleeping around or... He said, but they all swear. I said, well, they don't really. He said, well, they do, they swear. And what I'd noticed was just to say that sexual swear words had stopped, but other swear words had carried on, just like deeply ingrained in the culture. He said, and some of them have got really offensive tattoos. And they said, we, if people have got tattoos in our church, they go in deliverance ministry. So I'm sort of, oh, you know, I think this is really, it was a really interesting conversation. I'm sitting there feeling more hot under the collar than you were, trying to make one hand go one way, one hand go the other way, you know. But this was the point, you know, what was churchianity and what was Christianity? What's, what's church, what's kingdom? You know, it's a massive debate for us, isn't it? Like, for instance, organ music. Just be loosed. Just be free. Just gather around, just pray at the front. But organ music, like for instance, when we were taking our church through uh, a time we were introducing more contemporary music, and I've got nothing against organ music, so this is not a dig at the organ, okay? Just in case anyone here plays the organ beautifully. This is not what I'm doing. But when I was trying to take the church through this process, I had to move the organ off the stage to make room for the drums. So I... No, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. It's what I did. So I did it as like a gradual, it's a gradual process. And I gradually moved it to the back of the church. 
because we had a synthesizer that could do organ noises for funerals and weddings and other such occasions. I know, I know, I was naive, I was young, I didn't know better. Anyway, so this is what happened. Anyway, at one point I was collared by a, a bloke at the door. I used to always stand at the door and shake hands to everyone. You know, a few hundred people, everyone was just standing shaking hands. And this guy, he got red in the face, he said, you've moved the organ to the back of the... Like this, really having to go at me. I got a stiff letter for me the following week. The next week he got he said, I'm passionate about this, you know, you've... Why are you doing this? And I said, well, we can make organ music with the synthesizer. I said, but you, why? And I said, can I just ask you a little question? Have you got a CD of organ music in your CD collection at home? And he said, no. I said, why? He said, well, it's not the kind of thing I listen to at home. I said, then why do you want to inflict it on everyone at the church, a kind of thing? And he, he, he stared at me looking at each other, and he said, I think I see where you're coming from. Now, we had senior citizens meetings where they played the organ, because that was their culture, and that's what they liked, and that was fine. But we were trying to reach a whole generation of people at that time in one of the meetings where that wasn't fine, you know, and so we were just trying to adapt. But what is churchianity, and what is Christianity? But this doesn't just apply to music and do we smoke or do we not smoke or tattoos and all this kind of thing. It can be little decisions, a big decision. So I'm just going to have a little experiment. I don't know how this is going to go really, but let's, let's have a little go. I want you to imagine that you are a vicar. I want you to turn into little groups of three and fours with each other. And firstly, I want you to answer the question. And these are based on situations that I've had to wrestle with as a local church leader. A couple come to see you who are deeply in love with each other and they want to get married. But they live together. What counsel do you give them and what advice or what conditions do you put on them before they get married? Just turn very quickly and give, just give you a gut reaction. Okay, gut reactions. Malcolm on the mic. Gut reaction. Just say as it is. No one's going to hold it against you. You are being recorded, though. As a vicar in the Church of England, it, by law, you have to marry them if they come to you and say you have to get, well, they want to get married. As a vicar in the Church of England, if they come to you in your parish and say they want to get married and they're associated with the church, you have to marry them. Thank you. Be a house church pastor. <laughs> At least they want to get married, so they want to do something about it. Anybody else? Anyone else? Ah, we've got a question. They haven't got enough information. I'm going to ramp it up as we go. Just go with the facts you've got for now, sir. <laughs> Does that mean that you would, uh, you would only marry Christians? Oh, I see. Anybody else want to say anything? No? Okay. Okay, quickly moving on. Who here... In a, just deep inside, who here might sort of say to themselves, well, maybe I'll ask them to live apart just, just for a while before we marry them. Anyone, anyone sort of feel that? Okay, so there's a few of you think that. Okay, would you have the same opinion about getting them to live apart if they had a kid? Okay. Okay, so the story now is starting to affect the decision. Here's a different scenario. This couple comes to you and they're not living together, but they've both been married before. Turn to each other. What, what advice would you give? Okay, that's how, thank, thank you. It's the second time we've done that. That's the nearest door you can leave by. Thank you very much. I know, and I know what chalet you're in. Yeah. Okay, okay, just very quickly. 
Uh, they've both been married before. Gut reactions. Maybe you want to turn to each other and just thrash this one out very quickly. They're, living they're not living together, but they've both been married before. <laughs> he but says they'd have more sense than to get married again. Okay, gut reactions, very quickly. Anybody want to say anything? Hand up, quickly, please. Quick, quick. Right, thank you. I'll come to you in a second. If they've got baggage from their previous marriages in counselling, you'd want to make sure they dealt with it. Okay, you're all listening to that. It's important. If they've got baggage in their previous relationships, you'd want to talk that through with them to make sure they dealt with it. I've been in that situation, and the church hurt me a lot, but a different church, a free church, married us. And actually, we, if we hadn't been strong Christians, we'd have turned away from the church. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Anyone else? Did anyone here have a gut feel of just sort of, maybe, I don't think I could marry them? They've married for anyone feel that? Okay. That, that lady did. Do you want to explain why you did? Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, I think it's so, such a major thing that it's very difficult to just in 30 seconds have gut reaction. Hmm. Right, I can shout. <laughs> I think it's very easy for us to be judgmental and um, the Lord tells us not to be judges that with our own conscious, conscience within our own families, whether it's the Christian family or our own family, it very much depends what steps into your life um, as to how you deal with those matters. And if you actually stop and think if it was your child who, um, even being brought up in a Christian family, then decided they would go and live with someone, and then what do you do? Do you say, right, that's it, that's wrong? My love for my family is totally unconditional, and Thank I you. think that's what God teaches us, unconditional love. Can that's I tell great. you a very Thank quick you. story? That's brilliant. Can I walk for, tell you two, a story about quick, my yeah. two brothers? I have a brother called Colin, who's 53, it's directly answering that, and a brother called Edward, who's 51, and 52, yeah, because he's only 11 months apart. Colin, none of my family are Christians. None of my family are Christians except me. Well, how do you know I'm... Yeah, uh, um, Colin met a girl called Donna, and they lived together for 15 years. They um, had a party, and at the party, before they moved in together, they shared vows, they made promises to each other, um, and they promised that they'd be faithful and love each other and all that. Um, Edward uh, met a girl, got married within three months, and was divorced within seven years. Yet Edward was married and Colin and Donna weren't if you understand marriage as a bit of paper but actually I'm not sure that was the right way around it's brilliant I mean, I'm in a situation too the only believe in my family my sister has been married for a number of years to a guy who is just abusive uh, she's walked out of that relationship to save her life essentially and has met someone else who loves her deeply now what do you do with that I mean years ago I might have had some quite entrenched views, been indoctrinated into quite conservative evangelical views when I first became a Christian. And I really take the point about you can't give a knee-jerk reaction in 30 seconds. But that was an exercise just to make a point because sometimes we have all these emotions well up, but where do they come from? You know, and is that informed by scripture or culture? Where do these things come from? And so often our story, actually, when we start to dig down into the stories, that starts to actually inform our conclusions much more than we might previously have liked to think i think 
what I found was as a pastor was that everyone had a proof text to throw at me. You know, when they were isolated from a problem. In church meetings, everyone had a proof text. Everyone had an entrenched opinion. But they weren't sitting in front of the people listening and trying to engage in scripture in the context of the story. Acts 9, uh, verse 2, the early disciples are called followers of the way. And I love that, this whole kind of idea of walking and following and being with Jesus. Isaiah 30, verse 21, you know, this is the way, walk in it. You know, you're, you're walking with Jesus and you're learning as you go along with him, hearing the stories. I love the Emmaus Road story, you know, where they're kind of blinded to who Jesus is, even though they've walked with him all those years, and then it's suddenly revealed to them. You know, and that, that, just a beautiful picture there, I think, of as you walk more with God and you stay close to him, you make Jesus prime in your life, you just enter into new revelation, new understanding, but it's about keeping your heart open, isn't it? got a, a fantastic video just to show you very quickly and then I'll conclude and hang over to uh, Malcolm. Check this out. We should be the crazy ones. We're the people filled with the Spirit of God, aren't we? So in what way are we walking to a regimented kind of straight walk or to a different kind of rhythm? Have we got our eyes open? Are we lifting up our eyes and thinking with open hearts? What if Wilberforce hadn't lifted up his eyes? Or Martin Luther King? Or Jesus healing on the Sabbath? And the question I've got is, for us at the moment, what are we not seeing in our time? Where are our eyes closed or our hearts closed? you a moment to think about that don't have to rush into the next thing just think about that thanks Carl oh great thank you if you were writing a life manifesto what would it be the five things that you'll live for five things that you'll die for what would they be? If you were mapping the moral agenda for the church for the 21st century, what would the five big moral issues of our time be that we should be taking a stand on? It's really interesting. We're on pages 41 to 45 of your pad, your books, by the way. Um, vision and change are very connected. Have you ever felt frustrated about something. If you felt frustrated about an issue or a situation in your church or in your community, put your hand up. I've got really great news for you about that. Frustration is just another name for vision. Frustration and vision are two sides of exactly the same coin. If you are not frustrated enough with the status quo, you won't want to change it. So all those times that you've prayed and said, I'm so frustrated. I wish God would take my frustration away. Don't pray that. What you need to pray, I suggest, is God, turn my frustration into something I can do. Give me something to do with this frustration that turns it into vision. It is impossible to change the world if you are comfortable with it. It's impossible to move things on if you are more comfortable with the way it is now than the way it could be. That is so releasing to me because I, I get really, really frustrated 
I get frustrated about everything. I get so frustrated that my wife has bought me a rubber brick and I throw it at our TV. Because I watch stuff on the news, I listen to Question Time, particularly in the last few months. And honestly, if I was in, I've been on Question Time a couple of times, but if I could reach into the TV screen and grab some of the people that talk nonsense by the neck, I would strike, well, I wouldn't strangle them because Jesus wouldn't. But I get so frustrated. What really frustrates you? What really, really, really irritates you? I'm good at being irritated. I'm Irish. That's really frustrating. If I didn't have a lot to do today, I'd be trying that all day. It would really. But, you know, did you hear the story about the Irishman that got off the uh, boat in New York after the potato famine? Walked up to the first person that he saw and he said, is there a government in this country? And uh, the guy said, yes. He said, good, I'm against it. <laughs> I get really frustrated. What really frustrates you? You're not going to have long to talk about this. What really really frustrates you? What really makes you mad? You've got one minute. Talk to somebody about that. Go. There's a problem with our screen. The text number keeps bouncing off it because it's in a funny box. Here's the text number if you want to text us. Text me what you're frustrated about. It's 079. Everybody got a pen? Don't all rush for their pen now. Particularly you, Luke 3. That's better. Oh, so you're not going to sit there tomorrow. You're going to be right at the back. <laughs> Good for you. 079 68472. I've got a friend um, who doesn't believe that she's, in a, she's being effective for Christ unless when she preaches, somebody heckles. <laughs> All right, everybody got that? So if you want to say something, argue, disagree, fight, rebuke, correct, tell us how to improve, um, comment on cards, dress code, obviously mine's fine, then you can feel free to text. I'll leave it there so it'll beep. Um, here's the thing. We, if we don't have a vision for change, we won't let change happen. Jesus never once, the whole point of today's session is Jesus. How did he live? What were his ethics? What was the way, how did he handle situations? What has he got to teach us? One of my, uh, one of my great friends says that Jesus wasn't a preacher. He was a politician. He was a man that spent time with people. He talked not just to the religious. He talked to those who thought they weren't good enough to be religious. He talked to those that were cast aside. And he never once, never once does he say, study me. Not interesting for us as evangelicals. Never once does he say, write a book about me. Two of the most influential people in history, the most influential being Jesus, another very influential being Socrates. Why did they never write a book? Have you ever thought that, or am I the only daft Egypt, to use an Irish expression, that says, why didn't Jesus write a book? It would have been great if Jesus had written a book, because we could have said, this is Jesus' book. It's not 
not Matthew's book about Jesus. It's not Mark's book about Jesus or Peter and Mark writing it down or John or Luke. Jesus wrote this. Why did he not do that? Because it's not what he's about. It's not about studying him that makes us followers of Jesus authentically and ethically. It's about following him. And you can't just study him. You've got to walk with him. You've got to enter into a relationship with him. You've got to see him and listen to him and talk with him and allow him to talk to you. Do you know the clip that Carl showed yesterday of the burning bush from the prince of Egypt? Yahweh, Yeche, Yuchu, Yacha, Yoho, Yeche, Yacha, however you pronounce the name, um, basically was an invitation not only to understand that God always was, it was an invitation to Moses that if he wanted to know God, he had to be in relationship with him. He didn't have a noun as a name. He has a verb as a name. And the verb is this. If you want to know me, you've got to walk with me because I am. I exist. I am always. Jesus is the same. Every disciple, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. James says, tell me your faith, show me your works. The whole of the New Testament is built around this idea that to be ethical, to be little Jesuses, which is what the word Christian means, to be little anointed ones, we've got to understand him. So here is a very bold suggestion to you. Whatever your personal vision might be, if it doesn't fit with the big vision of transforming the world according to the gospel of Jesus, then your vision needs to change. There are people all the time, I don't know if you've experienced this, Carl, that go off and say, I'm going to work out what God wants me to do with my life. I have to be on my own. I, 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 don't, I don't want anybody else's help. I don't want to do it in community. I need to do it on my own. You can't. The vision for your life as a follower of Jesus must fit under God's vision of transforming the world. It has to fit in the ethics of Jesus. If it doesn't, then your vision needs to change. Jesus's doesn't. Does that make sense? And that's a real challenge for us in an individualistic, consumer-based, burger bar Christianity. We don't like the idea of having to consider things that change our vision. We go into the burger bar of church and say, I'll have a, a Big Mac of blessing, thanks. And the mayonnaise of what God can do for me. But leave the pickle of serving the poor on the side. Take away the gherkin of standing up for the marginalized. Take away the sour cream of having to be unpopular and carry a cross. Vision and change are deeply linked. If we are dreamers, then we are not enough. If we are visionaries, we might just change the world. I love Theodore Roosevelt. I don't know um, if you read any of his work. And, and he was a, an inspiring, challenging person. One of the things that he said in a speech to um, students in Yale was this. Far better is it to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much, because they live in a grey twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. Do you know what I think is the worst, worst thing for us as followers of Jesus? to just settle for the mediocre. I don't mean ordinary, because the ordinary is spectacular. I mean mediocre. I'll give it a little bit of effort. The most important question 
anybody can ask you after are you a follower of Jesus is this. What on God's earth are you here for? Why are you here? Why are you on the earth? What are you going to do with your life that will make a difference? What is it that you can do that no one else can do? That's why the example of Jesus matters because we see in him the inspiration for us to be life changers, world changers, transformers, people who bring hope. Here's a little explanation to, for you of vision. Vision is linked to intention and intention is linked to means. If we want to have a clear vision of what we've got to do with our lives, we've got to understand, as we said yesterday, who is God and what is he like? What has he done in me? How has he made me? How am I the way I am? Any systematic theology, Calvin, Luther, um, Charles Finney, uh, Louis Burkhoff, Karl Barth, any of them, any serious systematic theology starts with the question, who is God? Because we can't understand who we are until we have some understanding of who God is. The second major question that any theologian will ask if they're trying to work this out is, who is God, therefore who am I? If I know who he is, I can work out who I am. If I know what Jesus is like, I can work out what I'm supposed to be like. I don't think that we're very often as like Jesus as we could be. I think his moral agenda is far bigger than our moral, moral agenda. I think he cares far more about the poor than we do. I think he cares about families far more than we do. I think he's interested in transforming the world far more than we are. I think his vision for transformation is a thousand times bigger than, bigger than ours could be. I think he wants to change every grain of atom and existence in the universe, and we are called into that. So when we understand who he is, it helps us to understand who we are. That then leads us to our decisions around intention, our choices and our purposes. I know it's going to sound completely revolutionary to many of us. I lead a congregation of two congregations of people and many of them work very, very long hours and I support them completely in what they're doing. But sometimes it's okay to take a job with a smaller salary so that you can invest time in other things. Sometimes God's intention is that you will take a risk. Sometimes God says, put my kingdom before your own benefit. The very fact that that is so difficult for many people to hear in the church in the Western Hemisphere tells me that we've moved. It's okay to make choices that the world laughs at, but God smiles at. It's okay to downsize in a house. It's okay to try to do something different. It's okay to engage passionately with the poor. It's okay to have a different view of possessions. I don't know what your intentions and your choices are, but then you need to work them out for yourself. And then once you've worked out, who is Jesus? What does that mean for me? How will I now live my life? That's your decision, not mine. But you must make it. Let me tell you what I've done. This is not to glorify me or my family. This is, and I'm not trying to preach at you, but for 20 years, uh, 15 years, I have lived as a third order Franciscan, uh, which means my wife and I, whatever we earn, and we earn good salaries, we, share, we live off the average wage in the United Kingdom, which is 25, 26,000 pounds. We give everything else away. We have a house that has had somebody living with us for 17 years. We always have an open home. We always have people that are welcome to come and stay. We take risks with the poor and the marginalized. Has it hurt us? Of course it's hurt us. 
We've had our TVs broken. We've had stuff stolen. The only rule that we have is this. When our children are in the house and we are not, you may not be here. We protect our kids. We make sure that they're looked after. But we have had people, we've had drug addicts, we've had heroin addicts, we've had prostitutes, we've had alcoholics, we've had uh, Satanists, you name it, we've had them living with us. Also, every one night a week, every week, we have just an open meal. And if people want to come and eat, they come and eat. And they always come and eat. Now, that's not going to change the world, you might think. That's not going to change governments and transform systems. I tell you what it does for me. I'm doing something. I'm trying to do something, one life by one life. And I could give you a journal of the stories of people who've discovered hope, not because of me and not because of Debbie, but because there was somebody somewhere that was just willing to share with them. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that's your calling. That's my response to what God wants me to do. That's my response to how do I live my life ethically? I do not want to get to the end of my life and say, I wish you'd done it differently. My father died on the 31st of August, 2001. He was 71 years of old and he dropped years of age and he dropped dead. And his um, headstone, his name was John Bell Duncan. The bell bit came because his father was drunk and couldn't remember his middle name. And he heard a bell ringing outside and said, oh, just call him Bell. 3rd of July, 1931 to the 31st of August, 2002. 71 years of life are represented by a one-inch dash of gold on black granite. I am determined to leave more than that. And you must be, in your heart, determined to leave more than a dash of gold on granite. Do you know how to measure your success? Not by how much money you have, not by how many houses you own, not by how many careers you develop, not by how many churches you build, but by your legacy. What is left when you are not here? Really, un really uncomfortable thing to say is this to you. You are the present now. But in the words of David Cameron to Tony Blair, when Cameron won the Conservative Party leadership, um, do you remember that moment when everything changed? Looking across the dispatch box, David Cameron looked into the eyes of Tony Blair and he said, you were the future once. One day there will be other people sitting in these chairs. Much as I love you, much as I enjoy being with you, one day this odd Irishman will not be speaking here. There'll be another generation of people. There'll be other people that'll take this place and do it better than me. And there'll be other people that'll take your place. You've got one shot at this. One shot at living ethically. One shot at changing the world. And God says, do something with it. In the light of the example of Jesus, do something with it. But where's the sustenance for that? That's what today's about. The sustenance is in gazing into the eyes of God. It's in looking into the wonder and the beauty and the love of God. It's only as we understand God that we can understand ourselves. As we understand that, we become life givers. And as we understand life, we become world changers. Do I think you can change the world? Yeah, I do. I really do. In preparation for today, I want to just get my computer. I wrote a poem about this and I want to read it to you. called oh turn it on it's called god gazer i can email it to you if you're interested in it but you may not be i want to be a god gazer captured by the brilliance that springs from the radiance of you i want to be a god gazer not a cheap food grazer or an easy option laser 
I want to be a trailblazer for the ordinary everyday life. I want to be a God gazer, not just copying the halcyon ways that shimmer brighter in the haze of the bygone rays of the good old days. I want to be a God gazer because looking beyond the trappings of success, cutting through the stucco of respectability like a laser piercing darkness. I want to be a God gazer reaching for the stars and seeing beauty in the moment by becoming fluent in the language of the God who is here, who is now. I want to be a God gazer until my imagination is saturated until my thirst is sated, until my passion is stirred, until my intellect is stretched as far as it can be, until my yearning yearns for others to be free. I want to be a God-gazer, not a meetings manager or a people pleaser or a tea and sympathy vicar, not a leadership trainer, not just a speaker, but a seeker. I want to be a God-gazer, and for a moment, I want God to gaze through me. I want others to see his eyes, heart, mind, love, above everything else in me. I want to be a God-gazer, captured by the brilliance that springs from the radiance of you. I want to be a life-giver, not a life-sucker. I want my life to be releasing, not appeasing or placating. I want to be a life-giver, a drain pipe without blockages, a circuit without stoppages, a connector without breakages. I want to be a life giver, a you can do it releaser, a have a go preacher, a you were born to do this pastor. I want to be a life giver, seeing rivers flow, not die, seeing others rise and fly, helping friends reach for the stars, even if they sometimes miss, at least they say they tried. I want to be a life giver, generous in spirit and in heart, letting the forgotten make a start at being life givers too. I want to be a life giver because I'm a God gazer, not because it's about me, but because it's about him. Because life can't spring from any other thing. I want to be a life giver, connecting to the source and pointing to the sun, standing in the shadow of the light, celebrating him. Because I want to be a world changer, not just a furniture rearranger or an it could be better, whinger or have the leftovers, stinger. I want to be a world changer, a doer, not a talker. I want to spread the clothes of heaven, no more than or less than a poor man's dreams beneath the feet of Jesus. I want to be a world changer because on a morning many winters ago, the tomb was open and the curse was broken. Death had to let go and recreation burst out of an old wineskin like water from a geezer, like the cry of a child pushed into the world and nothing would stop him or shut him up. I want to be a world changer because it started because the vanguard's on the move and love is pushing out hate and light is shining out and darkness can't understand it, beat it, change it, hide it, kill it, stop it or win. I want to be a world changer because there's safety in this danger. There's meaning in this purpose. There's joy in this mission. And too many others are missing the power of life in all its fullness. World changer, life giver, God gazer. God break in, then break out. Fill then make us leak. Plug us in and push us out. In us, through us, around us. Make us Patricks. Make us Brendans. God-gazers, life-givers, world-changers, captured by the brilliance that springs from the radiance of you. Let's pray. Thank you for every person in this room. Thank you for their passion and their interest and their energy. 
Thank you for who they are, for what frustrates them. Thank you for the stuff that makes them want to throw bricks at televisions. Thank you for the ordinary, everyday lives that really can change the world when they're inhabited by your spirit, Lord Jesus. And thank you that nothing is impossible to the people in this room because you have risen your son from the dead. Let resurrection life pour through them. Can I invite you to read this little liturgy that I've written um, for us before I hand back to Carl? I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. This is, by the way, let me explain what this is. This is the Methodist covenant, which is in your books. And I've written it on here so that you can follow it for those of you that don't have the book. It's a simple prayer that is prayed every year by those of us who are part of the Methodist tradition in one way or another. Normally, for us, it's the last Sunday in January. And it's a prayer where you say, for this year, this year, I can promise you this year, this year I'll put you first. So let's pray it again. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Let's again, let's just take a moment of quiet. Shall we just reflect on what we've listened to? A surprise to some of you. Moving on to the how section. But I lift a bit of weight every now and again. I like getting in the gym and doing a bit of weightlifting. I've given up a bit of that now because I'm running a London marathon in a couple of weeks. For charity. My charity. But I'm running it for charity. Anyway, in my quest to get in the gym, um, a few years ago now, uh, I must, gosh, must be six, seven years ago, six years ago, I was in the gym uh, just pumping your old iron, doing some bench pressing. I got a little inner voice said to me, I want you to go on the fast, which is not at the time my regular practice, if I'm honest. I mean, we did the occasional day of prayer and fasting, but but I, you just know when that's going to be big. You know, I just, this, I just thought this is going to be a long time. So now I've got to stop lifting weights immediately, went down to change room. I had an apple in my locker and a banana. So I stuffed them down my neck in disobedience. And as I was doing that, I said to God, how long do you want me to fast for? And there was just silence. So I think, this is not good. <laughs> 21 days later, I was fantasizing about KFC. I mean, I am seriously want to eat fried chicken. 21 days. I lost nearly a stone in weight. But here's the thing. I'd wake up in the morning and I just felt God was like that. I just felt he was with me 
just almost touching my face that close it was an amazing time on the 21st day it happened to coincide with the 40th anniversary celebrations for the church where I was senior pastor we had a guy who is one of my dearest friends scheduled to lead worship when I turned up two hours early to see how the setting up was going for this massive event my colleague and close friend hadn't turned up a message got to me that he wouldn't be turning up because he had just run off with one of my friend's wives. And in that kind of scenario, one of my closest friends, fellow contender for the gospel, you could easily go into a meltdown, couldn't you? But in that scenario, God was that close to me. And I remember just being surrounded by my team. We had a team of about five or six pastors, and they were all standing around me, and people were really emotional, and they were saying, what do we do? He had actually gone off with the daughter of one of my deacons that he had performed the wedding service for six months previously. And he had been the man to stand and say, let no man separate. And he had gone. And everyone was standing there saying, what do we do? And here's the thing. In that scenario, I felt more clarity in how to make a decision and what we were going to do than I'd ever felt in any scenario before. And we steered our way through it. And you know, that morning, people even gave their lives to Jesus during that service, which is absolutely phenomenal. And as a church, we steered our way through it. But here's the thing. I play a little bit of jazz piano. I know that might come as a bit of a shock, but I play a little bit of jazz piano. But I can only play jazz piano because I've been playing classical piano since I was five. And when I decided to learn how to play jazz piano, because I knew all the scales and arpeggios and I could do a little bit of Bach and I could do a little bit of Beethoven and this kind of stuff, and I actually played to quite a good standard, when I decided that I was going to start doing that, it just started to flow because of the years of practice and doing stuff and walking through those scales and my mum and my dad making me sit there for 45 minutes every evening playing the piano meant that when I finally came to do the jazz, I had it. Do you know what I mean? I'd had it for years of practice. I was talking to an actuary recently. He's a 30-year-old actuary. Do you know actuaries trained for seven years post-degree to do what they do? They're like the rocket scientists of the statistics world. And they're phenomenally intelligent guys. And I said to him, I was on this sports week with him, he wasn't not a Christian guy, but just spending a week with him telling him about Jesus. And he said to me, I think that being an actuary is like an art form. <laughs> I don't think maths is an art from what I can remember at school. And he said, no, seriously, it's an art. I said, well, tell me about your job. And he said, we have these highly sophisticated computers that process thousands of numbers and equations to come out with a statistical probability of when you are going to die. He said, and they're churning out thousands and thousands of numbers. I said, where's the art in that? And this is what he said to me. He said, sometimes these machines are churning stuff away. And they're highly powerful machines. And a number chucks out at the end. And I look at it after all these machines are doing all these calculations, thousands of numbers, and I know it's wrong. I said, well, you know the answer's wrong. He said, I can feel it. I can feel the answer's wrong. And it's a beautiful thing. And I said, how often are you right when you feel the answer's wrong? He said, over 95% of the time. And that's amazing. He said, I can just feel it. 
Now, I think that making ethical decisions is a bit like that. And we do it by working through a bit of a formula in terms of how I do things. But here's, I think it's about your walk with Jesus, your ability to stay close with him, you keeping your life in his presence, you staying rooted in the word of God, wrestling things out in community. And that's how we make effective ethical decisions. So I'm just going to walk you through this, and then we're going to have a little group exercise just to finish with. So here's what I would do. Number one, I take a deep breath. Whenever I'm faced with a decision, as an activist, and you'll be activists, that's why we're here, our immediate knee-jerk reaction to situations or decisions is to do stuff and worry about the consequences later, isn't it? Often, that's what I do. I'm jumping on both feet, and, and then I'll pick up the carnage after. Interestingly, my wife did a little learning thing exercise, and she came out as a complete opposite to me, which has just explained everything in our marriage that is often a bit tense. That's great, isn't it? I think it's a great marriage tool, that thing. Absolutely brilliant. But I'm an activist, so I jump in. So the first thing I've learned to do is to take a deep breath. Have you ever had those like letters of complaint or like emails and you write one back? Yeah, you ever done that? That's fatal, isn't it? See, I've learned now to, what I do now, because I haven't got a rubber brick, but I've got an Apple Mac, is I can write stinging replies back that make me feel really good about myself, and then I don't send them. Because you, your knee-jerk reaction is to go, Poof. But what I've learned to do is just, number one, take a deep breath. Number two, what I would do is turn to Scripture and reflect on it and think about it, just to take some time. Number three, I ask what is, in my instinctive reactions, what is church, what is culture, what is me, what is Jesus? What is just my story affecting me? What were my bigoted opinions? What is, what is it just me? Where is, where is God in this? What's the Holy Spirit saying? And this might take some time. I mean, I'm, I'm learning now. I'm learning. As I approach 40, finally, I'm learning not to make knee-jerk reactions to everything. Number four, I do surround myself with wise counsel now. And I don't surround myself with people who are going to tell me what I want to hear. I think a fool does that. I surround myself with people, and they're on my team that I work with, who will have a contrary opinion to me often. And they can express it very strongly, because I'm a strong personality. So I like to have people around me who can give it back. In fact, what I've said to my team is this. I like to have our leadership team intention during meetings sometimes, in a godly way. We have a lot of fun too, but I like our roundtable meetings to be intention. But what I've said is this. I don't mind if we have argy-bargy. I don't mind if we really go to it with each other. But as long as it doesn't get, number one, personal. And number two, when we leave this table, we cover each other's backs. And we're brothers. Other than that, anything goes. So we have some really strong conversations. But I surround myself with wise people who will speak into my life and I listen to what they're going to say. Number five, that's all in the context of prayer. And I do involve prayer and fasting in my lifestyle now. I will do that because I think that's a highly effective way of staying close to God. Although, thankfully, it's not always 21 days. And number six, this is not a problem for me. I do make a decision. Some people say to me, I'm a strong leader, and I'm not. I just make decisions. 
which I think is very, very important because we can actually procrastinate our way into nothingness, can't we, at the end of the day? So that's one of the dangers of this process. You have to make a decision at the end of the day. So we're going to have a little bit of uh, an exercise uh, now. Uh, I'm going to tell you a story about Mickey. What I like to do is to tell you stories that uh, things actually happen, get us to grapple with things where we've had to really wrestle with some of this stuff. Uh, so I'm going to tell you about Mickey. Mickey was a 38-year-old dealer in stolen goods. He was a door-to-door salesman. He was the guy who came around with the squeegees and the back scrubbers and the dusters and all that kind of stuff. And what he used to do is he used to take an amphetamine to like speed and then he'd bop around, he had big dreadlocks and everything, he was really charismatic personality, and he'd take a bit of speed, and then he'd dash around all these doors all day, uh, flogging people all these stolen goods. He also used to like smoking cannabis, and he was partial to a bit of cocaine. And he lived with a woman, uh, he lived with a woman who was a brothel maid, and had a little daughter. A fantastic family, just very interesting lives, very different to mine. Brilliant people. Mickey met Jesus. Mickey came to see me to say that he had met Jesus. Uh, and he said that he wanted to be baptized. He lives at a brothel maid. He sells stolen goods. He takes amphetamines, cocaine, and cannabis. He told me he wanted to be baptized in a party while I was forced up onto the dance floor dancing with one of his estate church. And I danced like my dad really badly. But Mickey was a smooth dancer, and he's dancing around me saying, I've just met Jesus, my life's absolutely fantastic, and I want to be baptized. We sit down and we talk, and, and he's saying, I absolutely want to be baptized, and I'm a leader of a Baptist church where I've got church members who like to express opinions on things in church meetings. Get into threes and fours and tell me what you would do. Yeah. Okay. What kind of reactions did we come out with about my mate Mick? My mate Mick. I would let I would let him be baptized because when I was baptized, I wasn't a good girl. I just knew that I wanted to be a gooder girl. So you know, you got to start somewhere. I'd baptize him. I'd spend time, or I'd get church members to spend time with him and disciple him. Before, would you Would you do any discipling before you baptize him? Would you baptize him? Oh. Let me just reach over so you can follow that code completely. We had a situation very similar within our church. Um, it wasn't um, drugs and things, but they were living together, and the minister wouldn't baptize the woman, and they left the church. It was a wrong decision, but he should have at least spoke to his church council, put them in the picture, and then gone ahead. Thank you. Anyone else? It would be on the other side, wouldn't it? That's all right. Um, I don't know if it's a wrong decision because someone leaves the church because you don't baptise them. That's their decision. They're adults, so they decide that, not you. Um, but we had a similar sort of situation in our church, and um, and we went through the whole wrestling as an eldership team together, and we decided that we would baptise this woman, that we wouldn't do baptism preparation which we'd always done forever previously we always do this we decided we will baptize her uh, on easter sunday last year so we made all the preparations uh, for baptism and she didn't come for baptism so it was an interesting process why was god involved yeah. in that and that was obviously it was for us and we needed to 
change yeah. our minds as a church. Yeah. Tell you That's a really funny story about baptism. Somebody else put your hand up. Um, I once had to baptize a guy who had come from a really rough background, not dissimilar to the one that you had. And we asked him to share a little bit of a story before he got baptized, immediately before he went into the water. And he finished his story. This is really true. And he said, I'm really looking forward to being baptized. And I know that everything's going to be great as I move forward. It's not going to be easy, but um, God's with me. Um, and then he said, <laughs> and then he said um, amen, praise the Lord, cross my fingers, touch wood. And we baptized. <laughs> Anybody else? I feel a little bit frustrated in some ways by the situation because I just think God is love and he loves us all. And so who are we to judge? Who should get baptized? You know, just go for it and and pray for him because I was thinking that people like that who have had those experiences can do amazing things because they've actually experienced it firsthand. Like someone like me going to, you know, to minister to drug, I wouldn't have a clue. But he, that sort of person can really make a difference. And that is God, you know, if you baptize and you're filled up with the Holy Spirit. And I just think I would get a little bit irritated by, oh, shall we or shall we not? That would really. Well, then you should raise your voice and say, oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> you well, baptize on the confession of your faith, not my confession of it. It's your confession. I uh, agree with the last speaker about you know, not to be exclusive and not to re uh, reject people. But also thinking about it, he just said, repent and be baptised. He didn't say baptise and repent. If this person has got Christ in their life, you need to say, well, so what? And, okay, you're not saying, well, okay, be a good person for a year and then we'll baptise you. But there must be some evidence that Jesus in their life has had some effect. There wasn't that much evidence in the New Testament that we get baptised the same day they get saved. But that's, thank you. I understand what you're saying. What comes first, belief or behaviour? The chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's important that these people aren't just uh, baptised and left alone. Uh, so it's very important to prepare the field for the seed. Uh, so it's not just about the baptisms, that's just the start of his journey. Um, really interesting. Thank you very much. Here's, a, here's an interesting question. You're clearly very, very into getting people converted, uh, which is important. I don't disagree with that. Um, surely in the New Testament, the point of conversion, the point of announcing your conversion to the world was baptism. Why are we separating out conversion and baptism when actually baptism is the point at which you declare to the world, I'm a follower of Jesus? And we get into knots because we try to get people saved and then baptized. Surely baptism is the point at which you say to the world, I am ready and confident enough now to declare to the world I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, let me tell you what we did with Mickey, shall we? So he's in this party and Mickey says, I want to get baptized. So I said to him, what effect is Jesus having on your life? And he said, well, he said, as of today, I've stopped <laughs> taking speed when I'm selling my stuff, but I'm still smoking a bit of weed. Went, right, okay. So I baptized him two days later. At a church meeting the following Wednesday, there was a furore from certain <laughs> members of the church in our Baptist setting. And, and someone said to me, Carl, what are you teaching our children? That you baptize someone who's selling stolen, because it all came out in his testimony. He said, um, you know, ev everything. <laughs> He said, you know, he's selling stolen goods and you baptised him and, and people were swearing as he went under because a load of people came from the estate and they went, 
You have to, we're all growing up, aren't we? So all around the front, and they went, that's effing brilliant, Mick. Fantastic. All around, and, and someone, one of the other pastors stood up and said, do excuse us, you have one or two in for the estate tonight, which is really embarrassing. We had to fill him in afterwards. But anyway, this, this church members meeting, I'm getting assaulted. What are you teaching our children? To which my response was, one day, if your children ever walk into trouble, they'll know that there's a God who loves them. And if they're prepared to even make steps towards him, you'll have open arms towards them. So that's what I said back in response, which didn't quite placate things. But here's the follow-on story. His wife, who is the brothel maid, was in the shower a month later listening to Mickey's new collection of stolen worship music (laughs) and gave her life to Jesus in the shower. Here are some of the texts. Thanks, Carl. Here are some of the texts that you've been texting. No, I need you to express a view on, the, on some of these. Uh, first of all, somebody said to, te- to Carl, um, when, you said, when you write an email, do remember you've got a recall button in case you need to pull it back. Why not work? Thank you for the helpful fashion tip. Somebody, somebody texted and said, um, you'd look much more cool if you took your jumper off and then tucked the cuffs in rather than had it tied. So I've taken it off in complete defiance of whoever you are. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Somebody asked for a tip for the Grand National today. I've got a serious one and a not-so-serious one. The not-so-serious one is the woman, because it's about time a woman won. Yes. The serious one is just don't bother. Um, somebody texted and said, Disraeli said, great leaders unite, bad leaders divide. That's really worth remembering. Good stuff. Somebody said that what really frustrates them is advertising and its cheapening of our image and our understanding of ourselves. Last one. Um, somebody said, Jesus didn't write because he was too busy doing. I really disagree with you. I really disagree with you. What do you think? i tell you why I disagree, because he took days to walk from one place to another. He used to disappear into the shadows or go up a mountain. And he had a real pattern. He didn't rush. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't, I, I think he didn't, ra- why do you think he didn't write? No, I th- why didn't Jesus write a book? I didn't have Hodden and Stelton, I suppose. Well, I... <laughs> I mean, I, I would take the view that Jesus, when you, when you look at his life, seemed to have a pattern of intense activity and then intense withdrawal. Uh, and I suppose he had enough people writing about him. I think Jesus didn't write a book because if he'd written it, we'd have worshipped it. And it's why we don't worship the Bible. The Bible leads us to the one we worship. And if he'd written it, we would have turned it into something that we worship. Not that we ever do that already. Ooh, well, yes. On the day that the Turin Shroud goes on publication. Yeah. Anyway, goodbye. Thank God you. bless you. See you tomorrow. Don't forget the text. And if you spare a thought of prayer, pray for me for this evening, please. I'd appreciate that. And I'll see you later.